Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the HAN Show, we bring the haunt industry to you every weekday. We have news, education, and on-location coverage from Halloween experiences around the world. Whether you're a professional or enthusiast, each episode helps you better prepare for Halloween. Outside of this podcast, we have videos, education, and even events. Links to everything we do are in the show notes. On Mondays, we break down large trends from the news and discuss why it matters to you in our weekly Green Tagged series, co-hosted by Scott Swenson and myself. And check back tomorrow for our weekly haunt news roundup. Okay, here's this week's installment of Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. This is Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. I'm Philip, and I'm joined by my co-host Scott Swenson, who is back in Abu Dhabi. Yes. How do you feel, On Scott? On the other side of the world. I'm uh, yeah. It's it's interesting because when we record this, Philip is of course based in in California, and uh, now that I'm back in Abu Dhabi, we are exactly 12 hours difference. So um, I'm actually recording mm-hmm. tomorrow for Philip, um, and it's it's this weird sort of time zone thing. But uh, but you know, it's 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 interesting because. Now that we are on opposite sides of the world, um, not only is the time zone weird, it's also it also sort of even broadens our perspective even further because I have uh, access mm-hmm. to information and news and experience that is very different from what I would have when I'm still based back in Tampa. So uh, it's it's one of those things that it's going to be unique because I will be here for several months, and uh, so you'll see a lot of shows of us uh, being being worldwide. Um, what is that? Bihemispheral? I don't know. Um, but uh, reporting from different hemispheres, and uh, and the idea of of being able to share that that perspective from one of the new meccas of theme park here in the in the the UAE, and of course the existing mecca back in California, and the ongoing growing mecca from China. Um, we just we just have a very unique perspective now um, on the show because we were we're now going to be getting information from two very diverse information sources and uh, talking with people in very different parts of the industry. So I think it's going to be very exciting over the next few months to see how uh, our reporting will change and how our discussions will change and and on a very personal selfish level how my perspective of the industry is going to change as well. So. Um, because let's face it, the industry is changing faster than we can ever imagine. Uh, and we're going to talk about it today in, in, in this show because there's been some pretty major changes in the way mm-hmm. uh, large countries in the world are reacting um, to the yep. emergence from COVID, I think is fair to say. We've been saying that for yeah. so many years now. It's like the emergence from COVID. Uh, but different countries move at yep. different paces and in different ways. Yep. Yes, well, and speaking of that, China has woken, and it's kind of the waking of China is rippling throughout the world, which is a, a good kind of good way to start off this. Now that uh, we're we're sharing so many different locations on the show, different perspectives, we can look at how the tourism is really being impacted by China, the Chinese China opening, which actually interesting. So when we're recording this is the day that China's opening for Scott, but it's tomorrow for me. So <laughs> January 8th is, is, is the day that it's, everything is, is supposed to start happening. So uh, there, there's, what I did with, with this section was I tried to put together little snippets from how diff, all the different countries are kind of reacting and what everybody is doing from a lot of different sources. So I'm gonna, first uh, we'll start with Hong Kong Disneyland and they are looking to hire 600 frontline employees in preparation for an influx of tourists, including those from Southeast Asia as Hong Kong works to resume quarantine-free travel with the Chinese mainland as early as Sunday. 
The, the, the park president, though, noted the need to be patient as various local sectors, such as catering and tourism, were facing challenges and it would take time for them to return to pre-pandemic levels. Oh, gee, I wonder. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> this year, the theme park will unveil new attractions, which include a new statue of Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse, the world of Frozen Area, and Wandering Oaken's Sliding Sleighs. Now, the thing I want to know, Scott, is they're just now <laughs> looking to hire... It's like they waited for everyone to for for China to say that we're going to drop our policy and then like the day that China said that they were like we need 600 people in here tomorrow good luck with that um but what I what, yeah good luck what with I that. do think is interesting is uh, you know for those for those listeners who are not in you know her not in Hong Kong um and and that but it's it is it seems to be a worldwide issue and it's certainly true here in Abu Dhabi as well that when it comes to staffing um, they're still mm-hmm. saying we've got to be patient. We have to understand that staffing is not going to magically <laughs> happen like that. Um, it's not going to be that mm-hmm. uh, that moment of uh, let's see. Today, I think we need six hundred new frontline people. Um, yeah, <laughs> be, be, be patient. Be patient. Now, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the uh, what the the economic staffing world is in Hong Kong right now, um, but. Like I said, I do know that pretty much every place else in the world is is continuing to face these kinds of, of staffing challenges and issues. But uh, but now apparently there's a, a reason, you know, today where I am, tomorrow where you are, um, there is a reason to uh, to get these people in because we're going to get this huge, huge influx of, of Chinese folks yeah. that are, are now able to travel. And... Um, it is interesting because having been in airports for the last well, what feels like week, but really is only in about 36 hours, um, each airport handles things differently. Um, each group of tourists mm-hmm. are handling things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is it is fascinating to see. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is really because, is. you know, there you go through um, like, for example, I, I flew I flew from Tampa to Newark, from Newark to Zurich, from Zurich to Abu Dhabi. And um, Newark, oddly enough, was uh, probably the most masked airport I was in. Um, people from all over all over the United States and all over the world, um, I would say maybe 30% were wearing masks. Zurich, virtually no one mm. was wearing masks. On the planes, you could clearly tell who was from where and what their concern level were mm-hmm. was in regards to the spread of COVID and who was wearing masks and who was not. Um, I did not experience many uh, uh, Asian travelers, um, obviously not from China because that hasn't opened up yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and I'm curious to see, uh, because I'm actually, where I am located, I'm kind of uh, not uh, not in the Dubai hub, but in the Abu Dhabi hub of uh, of, theme park and tourism. I'm, I'm on Yaz Island. So I am surrounded by Warner Brothers World and Ferrari World and, and uh, Yaz Water World. Um, so I'm curious to see if I will actually see some Chinese tourists over the next couple of months um, making their way here. I don't know what the UAE policy is for, for um, Chinese tourism. I can research that for our next show. But uh, it would be. It would, I'm interested to see if I'm going to start seeing an influx here now that the the mm-hmm. gates are open. Um, but I do know that n- no one. There's not a single 
park here that is is fully staffed for a gigantic influx of people. Yep. So, yep. Good well, luck, Hong Kong Disneyland, in getting your six hundred. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. I I just read that and it was it just really cracked me up because I was like, well, okay, way a little late there. Well, does Hong Kong, um, but does Hong Kong Disneyland bring people in from other countries? Uh, well. Not, from my understanding, not to the extent that they, that they like mainland China is the main, is, is the main uh, hub that they get people from. It's like, it, we talked a little bit about this last time. It's, it's a lot Japan and then mainland China. And those, I mean, right now is, is, is the time it really is. It's all, all coming now, but um, let's look at how some of the other countries are reacting <laughs> to the, the Chinese opening. Uh, of course, you know, while Hong Kong Disneyland is panicking, uh, you know, as Scott experienced firsthand, everyone else is kind of taking a different approach to it. I'm just going to read a bunch of quotes from many, many different articles that we've kind of put all together to give this perspective. Um, from the South China Morning Post, they reported that an overwhelming majority of the EU's 27 member countries want passengers coming from China to be systematically tested for COVID-19 before departure, the European Commission said on Tuesday. That was just this past Tuesday. Uh, meanwhile, in South Korea, uh, police have launched a manhunt for a Chinese traveler who escaped from the quarantine facility near Seoul after testing positive for COVID-19. Police said the Chinese national declined to isolate and fled from a hotel off the West Coast on Tuesday night. So so it's kind of like, meanwhile, on Tuesday, the EU is arguing about all restrictions and then Seoul people are escaping from quarantine. And um, Australia's government on Wednesday criticized Beijing's lack of COVID-19 transparency. We talked about that at the last mm -hmm. show. After overruling its chief medical officer and ramping up testing for travelers from China, as Japan said, it would also start requiring pre-departure tests. Also on Wednesday, a growing list of countries, including the U.S., Britain, France, have recently slapped China with more stringent travel testing requirements. Also on Wednesday, Japan said it would join them in not requ in requiring a negative pre-departure test for travelers from China, but New Zealand said it would not. And then, as so we kind of cascade more and more, um, leading scientists advising the World Health Organization says they want to know more realistic picture about COVID-19 situation from China's experts as worries grow about the rapid spread of the virus. Again, we, we did talk about that a lot in the last episode about how much we really know about this. And apparently now the WHO is um, like, suddenly they are, they are questioning. The we really, yeah, like, we don't know. We don't know yet. Yeah. Um, then, uh, of course, as soon as all of this started happening, Beijing denounced entry restrictions on Chinese travelers as unscientific and unacceptable and vowed to reciprocate measures imposed by countries such as Morocco, which has declared a blanket ban on those arriving from China. Uh, and then, of course, as we're kind of settling down, more than a dozen countries, including Britain, Japan, South Korea, and the United States, have stepped up COVID curbs on travelers from China, although most of them have not outright banned Chinese travelers. Most of them, it's a it's a 48 hour kind of window where you need to test. And then there's a quarant like Japan has a mandatory quarantine. You know, it's really no different than it has been, but I just, I just like that uh, China is over here saying, Oh, it's, it's, it's unacceptable and unscientific and political. Um, right. Right. <laughs> um, but we, what we do know is people getting tested coming from China are testing a very high rate of positivity. We do know that now that people are landing in other countries, getting tests that are being reported, um, we do know that that there is a lot there. Um, and then I, I wanted to end with a little bit of 
some stats. Last show, we talked about the, what, 32 million-ish, or just the, the how many people visit um, Japan and how much their tourism sector they're trying to get back. And the, the amount that come from China to Japan is 30% of their total tourism. <laughs> like 30% of their total tourism for the country comes from me. And so th- this is what you're looking at when like China reopens. It's like, oh, that's a 30% that Japan is looking to capture back. So it's this line that we're wanting to walk, right? Where it's like, obviously Japan wants that back because that's a big number, but also you know, we want to make sure it, it's done in a way that isn't freaking out uh, the locals and whatnot. Um, and they're they're forecasting there in Japan that the number of visitors to Japan from China this year will, will be around 22 million, which is about 70% um, back from 2019 levels. So, <laughs> Well, and, and I guess my, my question, because I actually started to wonder the same thing. I was like, is this, is this politically motivated? Why is there such a why is there such a fear uh, from China specifically? And is it because, and, and re- trying to read between the lines, and I'm certainly not an expert in regards to this, so I'm not even going to pretend to be, but trying to read between the lines, it sounds like the concern is coming from the lack of transparency. It sounds like the concern is coming from here we are, China has had these, you know, quote unquote, zero Um, zero tolerance policies and shutting down and blah, 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 blah. But basically what they've done is they've put up all these walls. So we really can't peek into the neighbor's yard and see what's happening there. And therefore we're all suspect. Um, I do find it interesting that, that China has, has, you know, said to Morocco, we are going, you're not allowing us. Well, we're not allowing you. Um, I know, right? (laughs) That doesn't mean anything, but, um, but, but the whole idea of why is it specific now? and, And it sounds to me, and, and, and again, maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but it sounds to me like because China themselves have been so uh, zero tolerance and, and shutting down and da, 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 um, that they've made the rest of the world concerned about what's going on in their cloistered walls within this, this massive country. Um, so I think it's that lack of transparency that has made everybody else concerned is Am I, am I under, is there something I'm missing here, Philip, or is it, does that make sense? Well, you know, again, I think with the reason I wanted to point all these data points out here is to just paint how complicated this whole restarting of tourism is. And I think that because of that, there's not any one single factor. Specifically from China though, because tourism is already, we've already gone through this barrier in other parts of the world. Um, Certainly in the United States, you know, um, mm-hmm. certainly here in the UAE. Uh, so it's it's one of those, what what is it about China specifically that has made it either more newsworthy, because it's possible that's really all that's happening is we're talking about it more, or is it more of a threat? Um, and as you say, it is a very complicated and and uh, confusing web here that we're trying to navigate. And, and I'm just I'm just curious as to whether it truly is, whether there is truly more to fear um, from from tourism from China or it's more paranoia because China has been so um, so guarded in the information that they've sent out. Mm-hmm. I also don't know what the what the um, vaccination rate is in China um, because it's low. It's low. Well, that's what I assume. <laughs> well, the, 
Yeah. So I, I, I think my perspective from, from your observation, I think that's, I can definitely see that. I, I think that's, that's basically what it is. And I feel like as with anything, there's, there's gotta be a middle somewhere in the middle of all this. Like it's, I, I think everything is reasonable, right? I think it's, it's reasonable. Like, you know, we, we want things to go back to normal. That is reasonable. It's a reason we've been dealing with this, as you just said, for years, we want, we want everything to go back to normal. We want the tourism. Everybody wants that to resume. We certainly do in attractions, but at the same time, it's like, you know, there has been a lack of transparency about what's really going on and, and really like really, truly how many are unvaccinated. You know, we really don't know. We really don't know also if there are other variants that are, that have been, that are circulating there that are going to arrive here. Well, there's so much that we don't know. And then it's kind of just being unleashed everywhere. And, you know, it's, um, I, I think it's all very, <laughs> I think that part of it's very warranted. I think, especially when then you, you look at the kind of like the puzzle pieces, you put them together, like, oh, well, when people are arriving in Japan and arriving in the U.S. and they're arriving in these ports and they're being tested by our tests and then our tests are saying they're they're positive at a rate significantly higher than the rate that China's reporting, That then that starts to get... But then you got to ask yourself, well, is this some sort of like, you know, it, is it is it the, the type of people that would be infected are the ones that are wanting to be out anyway? And, that, and that's why they are, because they were out, you know, at super spreader events and then they wanted to leave when they could. I mean, there's so many of these things, but but I can see to me, it's very all of these are very reasonable. Like, I think it's reasonable. It's the lack of transparency. And then when the citizens are showing up and everybody is positive and then we also don't know what what strain they all have when we're not sure if, if how it's been mutated or not, we're not sure what the real vaccination rate is. Uh, we're not sure how many deaths are really have. Like, you know, we don't know how severe all that stuff is because of the lack of transparency and then people are showing up and they're positive at alarming rates. So I think that that's really what it is, but I guess my, <laughs> maybe this is like the cynic in me, but I'm kind of like, you know, it's, it's, I don't, <sighs> didn't we just go through this? And I'm not sure it's going to work. You know, it's like, it's like we tried to close borders before it didn't really work. So I'm not, I'm kind of like, we're uh, <laughs> we really going to get any, I think the question is going to be how deadly, if, if, if there is a new strain in China, it's coming here. Will our vaccinated populations be protected to, to a level that doesn't, that, that doesn't increase mortality rates. That's, that's really the, I think will be the ultimate question. Well, that's why I asked about vac the vaccination rates, um, in China and, and really everywhere. Um, because anecdotally again, um, with my friends and, and my connections over the holiday season, I saw more and more people who were testing positive and, and coming down with COVID, but because they were vaccinated because of their, the, the, improved treatment. Um, people were getting over it quicker. They were having um, reduced symptoms. They're, they were not being hospitalized. And, um, and certainly none of them passed away. So it was, uh, it's that this is, COVID is something that's going to be, it's not going to just magically switch off like a light switch. Um, it's one of those things that I think we're probably going to be dealing with for years to come, if not forever. And just like the flu and, you know, various other diseases that no longer have the, the media sexy quality that, that, that COVID still has and that, that uh, the ability to strike fear into anybody who hears the phrase. 
Um, I, I still stand by my, you know, get vaccinated, get boosted, um, be as, as, as proactive as possible. Because what we're seeing is not that it necessarily, I can't even say that it necessarily reduces the spread. What it does is it reduces the severity if and when it actually comes to you. You know, the same reason that you're encouraged to get a flu shot um, and, and the evolving strains of flu. You know, they say you should get, get a flu shot every year because there's a different strain that comes to the forefront. I, I think we're going to see that with COVID and we're going to learn to live with it. I just want to make sure that we're not either over or under reacting based on the media. And that is, that is my biggest yeah. concern because of course the media wants to make a big deal out of it because it, it either um, sells advertising on, on various media networks. That's, and that's probably the cynic in me towards the media. I, I see things, I see things where in the past, they have uh, blown things way out of proportion because it makes them much sexier to talk about. Um, so I'm hoping yeah. that is not the case. But again, I go back to if we don't know what the real facts are, and I think the World World Health Organization yeah. is, is kind of saying the same thing. If we don't know what the real facts are, we can't make real decisions. So um, yeah. I am, I'm hoping that we get more information as, as things pan out. I think, and I think, Start bringing it back to our listeners to the attractions. For me, for me as a manufacturer, I kind of think again, it's it's that whole all according to plan type of thing. You know, we we we've been hearing from our factory and from our that, that things are moving, things are reopening, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, even if there's some friction with, you know, I mean, Morocco will eventually calm down. <laughs> I mean, like people, you know, think you know, like that's why I want to put the the perspective here, you know, like Right now, Japan is requiring a mandatory quarantine and, and whatnot, and they're trying to restrict flights into five different airports. But 30% of your overall tourism, is that that's too much money. They need to, like, you, they need to get that. They're going to they're gonna figure it out. You know, they're going to figure it out, right? They're, they're, or they're going to, I mean, there's, and I think that's for us, like, as a manufacturer, that that overall, like, I, I, I almost hate saying that that we're optimistic because of all the death and all the craziness. And, but, you know, ultimately, I think the arc is towards the reopening and in, in, in towards that. I mean, there's there's friction, right? But it's getting there. And I think for attractions, you know, I'm actually shocked that Hong Kong Disneyland did not prepare better for this. You know, and I, that's what I would say to our listeners is like, you know, really think about once all this gets back and up and going, how that's going to ripple throughout the world economy and and the world tourism sector, right? We talked about it even even on in terms of firms reopening and uh, and, and because parks are looking to create new experiences in Asia now. Again, you know, back you can get back in, and now there's people hiring from there and they're staffing and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think that, again, we're going to be looking back at staffing. We've had to look at it here, but it's just going to cause us to look at this even closer is, you know, we talked about it on the last show about the about the possibility of the inflation and what that's going to do for ticket prices and all this and all that. The flip side of that is, you know, if inflation's high everywhere, and so you're seeing the same challenges in all these tourism areas, Japan has the same problem. And so does Hong Kong Disneyland, I'm sure, which is that the purchasing power of the 
the 600 frontline people has been reduced. So they're going to have to think about, again, their staffing packages, think about their hiring packages. And while in the U.S., while we've been hearing this week so much about all the tech layoffs, you know, Amazon laying off 17,000 employees, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that's we've known for a long time that some of the most durable jobs are going to be hospitality jobs. And now we're seeing that again manifest now, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, there again. I mean, we talked about the AI and all that stuff and I'm, you know, Scott, you've talked about this a lot. You can't really, we're really not at the place where we can, re, where we can really replace everyone in the theme park with a robot. We're, we're just, we're not there. Mm-hmm. So you, it, it's, we're going to, this is again, continuing going to be worldwide, a challenge and, and maybe possibly I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm hoping too, like a rethinking of what frontline employment at a theme park could look like. Well, you've got, also, we've also got a story coming up just like right now yep. that, that really is a perfect yep. example of how they're at, at Leesburg, they're kind of taking the idea of um, training and hiring and melding them together. This is a great story. I'm going to, you, yes. you share it because I think this is really cool. So this is courtesy of Impark Magazine, and the title is Leesburg to establish its own cooking academy in 2023. After several years of having difficulty finding qualified staff for various roles within restaurants, we just talked about mm-hmm. that, especially qualified chefs, Leesburg is now taking a drastic step. In the spring of 2023, Leesburg's own cooking school will start an education that turns amateurs into professional chefs on paid work time. Mm-hmm. As far as securing the supply of skills, Leesburg decided in autumn 2022 to start its own chef training. In March of 2023, the first 15 students will start their education. The 15 training participants receive permanent employment from the first day of training and will continue to work at one of Leesburg's restaurants after completing the training. This is exactly the kind of, I think, evolution that I I really do think we're going to see this as, as, again, as all these factors, as, you know, the, as really all the tourism gets really back on a global scale back to where it was. And then you see how these jobs just can't be really right now they just really can't be i mean just like i said they're having a hard time hiring because they're probably not paying enough (laughs) to make it competitive with the inflation and with the the shrinking purchasing power what people need but then you also can't get a robot to do it you know not cheaply at least you know so and and the thing about this program that that i find really there's several things about this program that i think are really smart now again it's 15 students starting so let's not let's not blow this out of proportion say look this is the the solution to every problem we've ever had it's not but for these very specialized roles and these very specific roles, it's doing a couple of things. Number one, it is making it so that they pay people, but they're not paying people what they would pay them had they completed their education. So they're they're looking yep. at they're they're creating a sense of value for the employee, so that the employee is not just yep. being paid financially; they're being being paid financially so that they can continue to live, but they're also being paid in knowledge and training. Um, and, you know, the, there is always going to be the argument, well, yes, we'll train them and then they'll leave us and go work somewhere else based on our training, which is a risk. Yes. However, with employees, if they if you build a value with the company, there is something to be said about that. Now, and it's hard to measure. It's much easier to measure money. You know, in all my years of theme park, they have always said, well, we just don't pay people enough. The truth is you don't value people enough. You don't give people enough value. And whether that is partially money, whether that is partially the way that you are treated, um, 
there is there is something to be said for a free breakfast. You know, there is something to be said for free classes um, because what that does is it builds a long-term relationship between the employee and the employer. And that is what gets people to stay significantly more than constantly elevating their salaries. So I think Leesburg is starting to catch on to that. Um, I also think that uh, attraction owners and and key players need to recognize that when you train somebody from the ground up who has an interest, you know, my all of my HR friends will say it is much better to hire someone who fits within the culture and then train them the specific skills. You can't train culture, yeah. but you can train skills. So what this is doing is Leesburg is now able to train these future, these 15 future chefs exactly the way they want them trained. And is it going to take some time? Yes. Is it going to take some money up front? Yes. But what you're going to end up with is the exact employee that you want. And we all know that, well, maybe not everybody, but those of us who've been in the industry know recruitment costs money. Recruitment costs a huge amount of money, especially to find the right person. And then training after they have been recruited and hired also costs money. So if you take that pool of money for recruitment and you take that pool of money for training and you put it into, you invest that into actually training people that are, that fit within your culture, that want to work there, that want to learn and improve their skills. I'm curious to see how this turns out. I have a really good feeling about this kind of project and I'm hoping that other, other parks are looking at this and will follow it to see that it actually makes sense. And, and it's, it's a little bit harder to, in a spreadsheet, sort of document, okay, X, X equals Y. Um, but, but certainly I think you're going to see that A plus B does equal C. Um, we'll see. We'll see how it works out. But uh, kudos to Leesburg for, for moving forward in this direction because I think that they will be able to train exactly who they want um, in a way that will make them very loyal to the company. What I especially like about their approach here is that you are giving a path for employees. Yep. And I feel like that is what has been missing from a lot of theme park jobs is really, uh, e- even our friend, you know, Margie, Dr. Margie Kerr has said that about, about grit, you know, and just about the, the concept of like, grit's fine, but p- people still want, you know, something to look forward to. They still like need an end goal. And I, I kind of like that idea of it's giving them a path. And if you could think about all of the frontline, it's like ideally in a perfect world, right? And I'm sure your HR friends would agree with this too. In the perfect world, all you would have a growth plan for all of your staff. Every single person who works at your company would have a growth plan where this is where they want to get. Maybe they want to be the best janitor in the world. That's great. But maybe they want to go from front desk over to, you know, general management or something, but everyone needs a plan and they all need to, to feel like they're getting closer to what they're personally trying to accomplish in their lives. And that's why I like this is because it gives people a path and where they can mark it's, you know, it's, it's the school system again, but thinking about each employee in that way, I think that's, that's going to be where we're going to have some, some innovation in, in staffing, or I think we're going to have to, in order to, to really uh, make people feel valued. It's adding some lower rungs to a career ladder, which I just absolutely love and making the career ladder longer and more and more defined. 
All right. Well, I'm glad we're ending on a positive note. This is a great thing. Um, we are out of time for our, our, our theme park in 30 concept. So on behalf of Philip in the United States and me here in the UAE, uh, thank you so much for listening or watching. And we hope to see you again next week right here on Green Tag Theme Park in 30. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope. Support for this episode comes from Gantam Lighting and Controls. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com demo. We release a free weekly industry newsletter. Sign up on our website or at the link in our show notes. The Haunted Attraction Network team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Maximus Bryant. Our partner stations include A Scott in the Dark, Scare Track, The Scare Factor, and Hauntopic Radio. Finally, please, please, please rate and subscribe to our show wherever you're listening. And until next time, haunters, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.